Well, thanks very much, David. Uh, g'day, everyone. I'm also David. Uh, lovely to meet you. I'd love to see you here uh, this Sunday. Gee whiz, what a couple of weeks of sport that it's been. Does anyone here like sport? I love sport. A few weeks ago, rugby union, the Wallabies and the All Blacks. Do we have any Kiwis here today? Any Kiwis? Anyone? None admitting to it. Good. So I was going to say, if you were here, get out. No, no, we love you. And we all know the best New Zealanders are here with us in Australia. The ones over there, no good. The ones here, the best. Um, then last week, of course, we had the NRL Grand Final, the Panthers. Any Panthers fans here? Any? Okay, everyone else, watch out for them. Uh, keep an eye on your valuables, your wallets, your handbags, your everything. <laughs> and for you Panthers fans, get out. No, no, we love you. It's wonderful. At least Souths didn't win, we can all agree. Ugh, terrible. But then this week... Oh my goodness, the AFL. Any AFL fan? No, of course it isn't. There wouldn't be an AFL fan in New South Wales. Why would you? Um, I've never spoken about AFL before. I hope to never do so again. But we probably should think about it, speak about it a little bit, because this week, the major story in sport, which I'm sure many of you will be aware, um, was actually in the AFL, and it was actually about the Bible. Did you see it? If you, if you didn't um, catch it, I'll just give you the very quick flyover. Um, during the week, Essendon Football Club appointed a man called Andrew Thornton as their CEO, yet less than 24 hours later, he was forced to resign. The reason was because he um, goes to a church uh, which holds um, biblical principles on certain issues of morality. Now, of course, we've got kids with us today. I'm not going to go into those issues. We're not going to spend much time plumbing the depths of them. But they're issues around um, marriage, relationships, and um, life, pregnancy, that kind of thing. Um, he goes to a church which teaches what the Bible says about those things, which we also do. That came to public light, and boom! I mean, he was... He was sacked. Well, he wasn't sacked. He was forced to resign very quickly. Now, as I said, we're not going to spend too much time thinking about the issues. But what I want to point your attention to was the reaction he received from politicians and the media. I've got a couple of quotes here from both the left and the right wing, so we can all be unhappy together. You know? <laughs> Dan Andrews, the Labor... People just groan. You know, um, the, the Labor leader of Victoria, um, he used these words to describe um, the positions which... Andrew holds, ones which we as a church would share as well. Appalling, intolerant, hatred, bigotry, and just wrong. Peter Dutton, the head, the federal leader of the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party of Australia, he disagreed with Thornton getting sacked, but he said these positions, these, these moral positions that he holds are an abomination. An, an abomination, and he condemned them. But surely the most striking reaction was from David Kosh. Koshy! Did anyone see that on Sunrise? I haven't watched Sunrise for 700 years, but last time I watched it, David Kosh was this jovial kind of, you know, friendly guy. Anyway, they brought on the pastor from this church, and he went at him like a Penrith fan at a free breakfast buffet. You know, he just went, vroom! Just like, he just... But the, the key was, he went at a billion things, but the, uh, uh, what he said about the Bible, this is what Kosh... Um, said he said he said the Bible is two thousand years old. It's from a different time, a different era, and yet you use it. He accused the man. You use it to tell particular people uh, you're going to hell. Other groups of people you're going to hell. Those views are hardline and unloving. Why can't you be more tolerant, more inclusive? Now, 
let's just step back for a moment. And I, I don't know if you saw those or not, but it was a really big story this week. What's going on? Let me offer two thoughts. One, if you're not aware, we are in the middle of a cultural um, revolution. Uh, there, there is a new morality um, that is emerging, has emerged within uh, parts of culture with very loud platforms and voices, education, entertainment, media, so on. Um, and uh, the new morality that is part of this revolution is at odds with many of the uh, moral positions which the Bible uh, tells us about. And that puts biblical Christianity in the firing line, in the crosshairs of this morality. So the outrage and the shock, um, the, the anger and the accusations that are sort of levelled at, at Christianity and, and the Bible uh, spring forward from this clash of cultures. Um, and perhaps you've experienced that yourself in your family or uh, at work. Uh, it's part of what's happening. But um, I also want to suggest and offer that there's something else happening there, something that we all need to recognise, I, I want to say that the outrage and the anger, the shock and the accusations against Christianity and against the Bible um, spring from a place of error. Uh, it, it's the result of a serious misunderstanding. You see, in the shock and the horror that we see for many um, about biblical morality. It's obvious that critics of Christianity believe have somehow cottoned on uh, with a thought that morality is what we're all about. That the most important thing to us are morals, uh, are how we behave. That that's the main thing that shapes how we view the world. Now, I want to say that is completely wrong. Completely wrong. But it's not that I want you to notice. In their anger and shock at the morality, they're missing something critical. What are they missing? They haven't noticed the far, far more shocking and problematic view that we hold about the world. You see, the truly shocking and outrageous thing about Christianity is not what we say about marriage and relationships, gender or life. It's what the Bible says about all humanity. That's the shocking and offensive thing. It's what the Bible says that is at the reality, the reality of every single one of us. And I want to offer that even though it is the most shocking thing to hear, and even though it is um, incredibly difficult often for us to say to people, as Christians, we need to be upfront, black and white, as clear as we can be about what the Bible says about people. Because even though it may offend... It's the most critically important thing they will ever hear. And not just that. Understanding what God says about us positions us to hear not just the bad news, but also the best news you'll ever hear. You need to know the full picture of what the Bible says. So what we're going to do today is spend a bit of time looking at the bad and the good and then tying them together to see um, what we can do with those things, how, how that shapes the way we view the world. Now, there's many places in the Bible we could go to. Ephesians chapter 2 is amongst the most clear in its diagnosis of humanity. So remember, what are we looking at? Well, firstly, what we're going to look at is the diagnosis the Bible gives for all people Everywhere, what the Bible says about every one of us. Have a look at verse 1 to 3 in your Bibles of chapter 2 from Ephesians. And we'll just go through this. I want to point out four or five separate things. Let me read verse by verse and we'll see how we go. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We are, you are, I am dead. Dead. 
by birth, by nature. Every person is born dead, spiritually dead, living life as spiritually dead people. How has this happened? Well, it's been brought about by in our sin. Sin, the rebellion and rejection of God, cuts us off from our relationship with God. God is the source of all life. So like a flower being cut from the vine, the minute we're pulled apart from the source of life, whilst we might flourish and, and, um, and do many things that appear to be exhibiting life, actually what we're exhibiting is just decay. But that's not the worst. Verse 2. You see, in so doing, we follow not just the rest of the world, but also the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air? It's Satan. This is telling us very clearly that all of us have at one point or another been followers of Satan. Jesus takes it further, John chapter 8. He says, actually, that all people who do not follow him are children of Satan. Now let's just press pause. What? That sounds pretty outrageous, doesn't it? I thought growing up, Satanism was usually attached with death metal, you know, or, or goths. No offense to death metal goths here, we love you. It's wonderful. But this, or maybe truly wicked, evil, horrible people. But look again, verse 3 all of us lived among them at one time. Being spiritually dead due to our sin, following Satan is not just um, the job description, the life description, the diagnosis of truly evil, wicked terrorists and killers and, and that kind of thing. It's all of us. It's not just the people who've gone off the rails. It's you and it's me. And whilst it's very true that all of us have any number of temptations externally. Other people, the devil, there's a myriad of different ways we can be tempted. Look how verse 3 continues. We are all among them because we gratify the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Flesh here is not a reference to skin, but our nature, our inner desire, our inner mind. Our sin springs from within. We are not victims. I'm not saying you've never been a victim of anything in your life. I'm sure you have. But our spiritual death is not the result of anyone pushing us off a ledge. We have jumped off the ledge willingly. We are responsible. In John 8, that passage where Jesus says that followers, people who don't follow him are actually children of the devil, he calls our allegiance, our obligation, our commitment to sin slavery. Sin is our master. We dance according to the tune that it puts to us. It's a master of our own choosing. Now, sin is a master that destroys everything. Sin is a destroyer. Everything good here on earth has been corrupted and poisoned by it. And yet I think the most terrifying, the most striking, staggering fact about reality that is given to us here in Ephesians chapter 2 is how, chapter, is how verse 3 finishes. Because sin's destruction does not just finish here on this earth. Look what it says. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I'll say that again. We were by nature deserving of wrath. 
Wrath means anger, God's anger. It's not a tantrum. It's not um, un- unbridled uh, you know, fury at someone doing something petulant. No, no, no. It's measured. It's calm. It's logical. It's deserved. Because we sin, because we have done it, we are cut off from God. We deserve punishment. And the punishment we will face is what? The wrath of God. I don't know if you've ever picked up or heard before that... Um, um, after we die, uh, when we face judgment, that, that if you're condemned, if, you're, if, if you don't go to heaven, you go to hell, and hell is the absence of God. Have you heard that before? Sort of like God just leaves everyone else there in that, that room and he walks away. That is not what the Bible says at all. Hell is not the absence of God. It's the wrath of God. The fires of hell is the wrath of of God. This is a terrible thing for us to hear. A terrifying thing for us to hear. And I guarantee you, if you're a visitor here and your friend has brought you there thinking, please, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> I get it. Let me be the bad guy or the good guy, whatever you want to put it. Let me just say it though. The Bible's really clear that this is the reality of our existence. That is God's diagnosis of you. And the person sitting next to you, and the person sitting in front of you. It is a description of you before you knew Jesus, whether you know it or not. It's a description of every single person you know who doesn't know Jesus, no matter how nice, how well behaved, how respectable, how kind, how charitable, how wonderful they are. It's your nana, it's your nonna, it's your nono, it's all of them, it's us. And let me ask you, how does that sit with you? What do you make of that? Every term, uh, here at, at EV, we run um, a series where we invite people who, who don't know Jesus yet or are finding, in, interested in finding out things uh, to come and find out. It's called Life. Or we run another one called Explaining Christianity. We're running one uh, next term. And in those series, we ask people the question, what do people say is wrong with the world? Now, just think about that for a moment. What do you reckon? Let me ask you, actually. What do you reckon? The average Aussie, not yourself, I wouldn't ask you to answer yourself, of course. What does the average Aussie you reckon is wrong with the world? Anyone want to shout it out? What do you think? What are some of the answers that we would get? Tax. <laughs> yes. Get out. No, yes, yes. Anything else? Ethics. Excellent. What do you say? Ethics. Yeah, yeah, ethics. Excellent. That's right. Social media, yes. Greed, did someone say greed? That is a very common one. Huh? Putin, that's right. Well, the Russian visitors we have don't say that, but the other ones all say Putin, yeah. War, pride, guys, it's like you've come to the series before. That's exactly right. We get a whole variety of answers. Lack of education, too much education. War, selfishness, greed, pride. Now, there's a whole myriad of answers we get, but can I tell you what two answers we never, ever, ever get? Never. Firstly, no one ever says nothing. Nothing's wrong with the world. No one says that. Isn't that interesting? You only have to have your eyes open for three seconds, of course, to know that that's true, but no one, everyone knows there's something wrong. Guess what else no one ever, ever, ever says? Me. I am. 
You see, when we think of our own lives, the problems in our own lives, every part of our natural instinct and desire is to say, it's their fault. It's them. It's not me. It's the Ukrainians. It's the Russians. It's the blacks. It's the whites. It's my neighbour. It's the in-laws. It's the wife. It's the husband. It's the kids. It's the boss. And yet the unapologetic, with absolute clarity diagnosis that Holy Scripture gives us all the way throughout the Bible is that the problem with the world is you. It's me. It's us. And it's not because of war or greed or selfishness. Those things are symptoms of the problem. They're not the problem. It's not because of immorality. That's not the primary problem with the world. The view the Bible... And, and you might even do this as someone who, who calls yourself a Christian, to view this book as, as a book of morality, as a guidebook for life, for how to live a good life. That is a profound misunderstanding of Christianity and the Bible. It's a very common misconception about Christianity. People view Christians as people who are hung up on any number of things, hung up on relationships, on, on life, on marriage. But the primary concern of the Bible is not morality. What is it? The primary concern with the Bible is, of the Bible is love. And it's lack of. The way we fail to love one another. We fail to love our neighbours. We fail to love our enemies. But primarily, above all else, we fail to love God. The problem is the human heart. We're spiritually dead by our own devices. We sin. We face wrath. Now, can you imagine if Koshi got his hands on that? Imagine the headlines. Imagine if they only knew what the Bible actually says about everyone. You say that that group of people are going to hell. Not just them, you too. Me too. One of the claims leveled against the Bible and Christianity is a lack of inclusivity. It's absurd. Christianity is the most inclusive religion on earth. We are all condemned. We're all facing wrath. Now, it may be unpleasant to hear, but my friends, be very clear. God's word is adamant. It's what the Bible says of every one of us. In fact, the word that best describes what we're talking about here is reality. It's, it's reality, not reality TV reality, like Reality, documentary reality. It's not what we want to believe. It's not what we like to believe. It's not what we hear other people believe. And yet it is absolute truth. Now, this is what's fascinating, though. For many people, when you hear that message or when we others hear that message, it's an immediate turnoff, an immediate source of frustration and anger. And it could be that you hear it and you're offended by it. I can think of a hundred people who, if I spoke with that clarity to them, would be like, what? How dare you? You don't know me. For a lot of people, the picture it paints is so black, so dark, that it's the most deeply offensive thing of all time to hear. And yet for others, for many of us, it's a blackness of the type that does not turn the lights off it's a blackness of the type that does not make us angry. But rather, this description of humanity is a blackness which turns the lights 
on. It means we can truly see. You know, you go to the city, the middle, of, the middle of the city, and you look up at the sky in the middle of the night. What do you see? Nothing. You've got the lights, you've got the pollution, you've got a bunch of different things. But you go out into the bush, you look up in the sky, what do you see? Thump. God's handiwork in the sky on full display. The galaxies, the planets, the, the solar systems, it's a stunning experience. Why can't we see the stars in the city? Well, because of the shroud of distractions, the, the things that, that clog up the night sky. It's not dark enough for us to see clearly. But it's only when that shroud is taken away, when the lights are well and truly turned off, that we see the stars at their brightest, the glory of the Lord in full display. My dear friends, the reality of our existence is that you are not spiritually indifferent. We are not spiritually, not too bad, oh, 51%. Not true. You're at 0%. I'm at 0%. By nature, we are corpses, dead. And then it's only in grasping hold of that, only in grasping hold of that with absolute clarity in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, that you can truly see the light that God presents for us next, the hope the hope that changes everything. Look at verse 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2. But, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Despite our endless obligation and commitment and slavery to sin, our self-imposed spiritual death, we hear the most incredible truth. God loves you. Not because of the things that you've done. Not because you are lovable. Not because you've earned it in some way whatsoever. You are a spiritual corpse. But because he is love. And so he acts. What does he do? Look what it says. He saves us. He makes us alive. Resurrecting us. Rescuing us from spiritual death. Not only that, not just up from death into life here on earth, but verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When you become a Christian, the spirit of Jesus takes your spirit into the heavenly realms with him. Yes, right now we are gathered together, but every day, every minute, every second, we are also gathered together in the heavenlies, made holy in our status before God through what Jesus has done. How on earth did that happen? How on earth could that happen? Verse 4. What did God show us? He showed us mercy. Mercy is to not give someone what they deserve. God did not show us the wrath we deserve. Instead, the wrath we deserve, he poured out on Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was treated by God like he was me, like he was you, like he's what we deserve. He took our Sin. Jesus died your death 
And that means that instead of showing us wrath, God, verse 5, he shows us grace. Grace is an action um, that has been the source of infinite celebration and joy amongst Christians for thousands of years. It can be a tricky word for us to grasp hold of, but think of the word generosity. Undeserved love, generously given. It is grace that Paul desires everyone reading this to be captured by, not just intellectually, but in your heart and your soul. Look at verse 8 and verse 9, some of the most incredible words in the Bible. It is by gra- For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. My dear friends, our salvation, what does this mean? What is your salvation based upon? It's based entirely upon God's generosity. Not earned, not deserved, not bought, not purchased, given and received through faith, through believing. That's how you became a Christian if you are a born-again Christian here today, even if you don't remember it, even if it happened when you were a little baby. That's how people have always become Christians. And that presents to us a staggering truth So explosive, so chockers full of dynamite that it has turned the world upside down for the last 2,000 years. A truth so explosive that it is at odds with every other man-made religion and philosophy known to humanity. What is it? God saves people, not because of who they are and what they do. He saves people because of who he is. And that drives what he has done. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. You're a spiritual corpse. You cannot perform spiritual CPR on yourself. You're gone. You're dead in sin. But also, do you see what this means? And for some of you, Oh, for some of you, this has been a truth you have drunk from for decades. This means there is nothing you have done that means you can't be saved. Your sin is not disqualifying you from God's grace. It qualifies you for God's grace. You have not gone too far to be rescued, not gone too far to be saved by the blood of Jesus. God's grace is more powerful than your past. He's more powerful than anyone's past. So let's just press pause for a moment and just step back and try and see these two opposite and yet incredibly coalesced truths together. Truth one, reality number one, we are dead in our sin. Following the devil, following the world, deserving of wrath. Spiritual reality for everyone. And yet, but God, in his generosity, in his mercy, in his love, he has rescued us if you are in Christ, if you have repented and believed and put your trust in Jesus. We have had our pasts taken away and forgiven and our futures assured, eternal life with God as the Father. It is no wonder 
that they call it amazing grace, that we call it amazing grace, isn't it? And I know that amongst us here this morning, there are hundreds and hundreds of stories we could tell each other, and we will for eternity, of God's great work in our hearts. I want to say it's not a matter of emotion. For some of us, we get emotional when we think about it, but that's not the hallmark of grace. The hallmark is the understanding that God is your Father. And you have been redeemed and, and, and forgiven and saved. But I want to say, um, as we consider those uh, incredible realities, this is a truth that does not just transform your past and does not just transform your future. I want to offer that understanding what God has done for you in Jesus transforms the present reality of your life in a profound way beyond anything else. It transforms your life in a way unlike anything else can in human existence. You and I have one life. It's crucial that we make the most of it, isn't it? We don't want to waste it. If we're Christian, if you're a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian, we can all agree, we want to ensure we do not pour energy and effort into things that mean nothing, into things that don't matter. We want to make sure that we live lives that count. So as Christian people, how are we to do that? In, in, in in the practice of our lives, in, in the practicalities, what does it look like to have our lives shaped by what Jesus has done, shaped by grace? Well, um, the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote Ephesians, um, uh, he gives us uh, the advice that we all need. It's in chapter 5. So if you can go over there in your Bibles, chapter 5. I'll read it out for you, though. Um, and we're looking for... Verse 15, Paul's great intention uh, in Ephesians is to point people to God's purpose and plan, that God has a purpose and plan for all things, to gather people together in unity, everything together uh, under the lordship of Jesus. But he also reveals the will that God has for our lives individually as well. Let me assure you, though, it's not about your spouse, your house, or your car. Okay, there's far more to it than that. Look at chapter 5, verse 15 to 17. This is what the Apostle Paul advises Christians to focus our lives on. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now just have that verse in front of you and have a look. What Paul is doing here is he's contrasting two extremes again. We've already looked at death to life. Now we have a contrast of foolishness and wisdom. What is a fool? What is foolishness? Well, a fool is someone who pays no heed to reality, who does not care how things actually are, who just does whatever they want, however they want, with no thought of the consequences, who is unwise, you see it here, not as unwise. Foolishness and unwisdom are the same thing. Someone who does not think about life. However, what is the wise person in contrast? What is wisdom? Have a look how verse 15 starts. Be very careful how you live. Now, careful, that word, that doesn't mean cautious, like, ooh, I'm a bit scared. It means thoughtful. Be very thoughtful about how you live. Wisdom, the wise person, wise living, the life lived wisely is someone who thinks carefully about life, who understands what. Well, verse 17 finishes it off for us. Do not be foolish. In contrast, do what? Understand what the Lord's will 
is. So the critical question for us to answer is, what is the Lord's will for your life? Now, Lord's will, uh, you might helpfully translate that as what the Lord wants. Let me, just in the silence of your mind, what does God want for your life? Above all things, in the time that you have left, before you're called to glory, what is it that God wants? Well, there's a theme that runs all the way through the epistles, but all the way um, through the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. But Paul returns to, uh, and you see it just actually in verse 22 of chapter 4. What is it that God wants for born again, for Christian people who've been resuscitated, more than that, resurrected from death to life? Let me read you um, chapter 4. I'll start at verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned... So he's talking about what you used to be before you were a Christian. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What is it that God wants for your life? Holiness. Be holy. And that's it. Okay. No, hold on. What? Be holy. For many of us, when we think of holiness, well, we have a variety, a kaleidoscope of thoughts. Uh, Stained glass windows, people with dinner plates behind their heads and stained glass, saints and some denominations, that's holiness. Or perhaps you think of someone with exudes spirituality. The person who raises their hands when they sing, I raise my hands when they sing, it doesn't make you holy, okay? It means you need deodorant, that's what it means. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're unholy or holy. Nothing wrong with it, nothing right with it. It is what it is. It doesn't mean anything. Or perhaps you think of the person who's really generous. Oh, Mother Teresa. Look how generous, she's so holy. Now those things may be examples of symptoms of holiness, but that's not what holiness is. What is holiness? Well, the phrase, the new self that we're told to put on, that's the key. The new self we're told to put on is that we are created to be like God. You and I were created to be like God. The new self we are to put on is the character of Christ. To be holy is to be set apart, separate, dedicated, To be holy is to be like Jesus. And the call for every Christian everywhere, it always has been, it always will be, is that the shape of our lives must be shaped in the shape of the life of Jesus. What he did, how he acted, how he thought, what he responded, what he proactively did, those are the things we are to model our lives on. He is the perfect picture of obedience and holiness. So what dominated Jesus' life is the thing that must dominate ours. So let me ask you, what did he do? In the life that Jesus lived here on earth, what did Jesus spend his time doing? Well, you might hear people say various things, that he was about love and inclusion, justice and revolution. He was a healer and a teacher. But what does Jesus say? Well, in Luke chapter 19, you don't have to go there. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he gives us his own job description, his life description, his personal mission statement. Luke 19, verse 10 Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The center of the life of Jesus was the center of the death of Jesus. Same thing. 
salvation. He lived to obey and please his Father in dying and rising to save sinful human beings, to resurrect sinners from the grave. Everything he does funnels towards that end, the very center of his life and death. Why would he do that? Because Jesus understood reality perfectly. But unless people hear the good news of Jesus, repent and believe in the good news, then they are spiritually dead, they will remain so, and they will face God's wrath. So let me ask you, in the light of God's command for us to be holy, and in the light of the reality of heaven and hell, what does the context of our reality demand of the lives that we live? Well, let me illustrate it for you. Imagine that you're a a fireman, and you're called to a fire at a farm, and you get there, and there's a barn, uh, one of those huge, incredible barns, and you can see from a distance that it's filled with millions and millions of dollars worth of farming equipment, and the farm, the shed is entirely alight. It is burning to the ground. You see, though, around 20 metres behind it, there's an old dilapidated house. This house is also on fire. Thankfully, this house is worth like, you know, $30. It's not worth anything. You know, it's nothing. It's an old house. Who cares? Millions of dollars in the shed, house on fire. But suddenly, one of the neighbours comes up to you and says, the family are still inside the house. They're in the top level. The house is engulfed in flames. They're asleep up there. They don't even know it's happening. What does the context of that reality demand that you must do next? No matter what, above all else, save the family. Imagine you're bushwalking with your family. You've got a small child. And to your horror, you see your four-year-old little child get bit on the leg by a brown snake and then slithers off. The child's got an hour, two hours max to live. You need to get it to a hospital. But thankfully, there is an antidote. But you know you need to pick up this child and take it. Or you can chase after the snake. Take revenge on it. What does the reality of the context of that demand that we do? No matter what, come what may, above all else, save the child. My friends, in the reality of the wrath of God... The reality of a life lived in spiritual death, in rejection of all things good in God. But also in the reality with the assured promise of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and life everlasting for those who hear, trust and obey what Jesus says. What does the context of that reality demand of our lives, no matter what, above all else, do all things possible in the time we have possible to tell as many people as we have possible so that they will be saved? Now, what would it look like if you took that seriously? What would your life look like if you were captured by the spiritual realities that God tells us. Above all else, come what may, no matter what, give everything you have, all your energy, all your effort, all your endeavours, all your dreams, all your treasures. There is nothing more valuable 
than seeing a single soul saved. Because what Jesus tells to us is that eternal life, relationship with him here and now and for eternity in heaven is worth far more than all the treasures of the world. I wonder um, um, if you're not a Christian here today, what would it look like for you if you took that message seriously? I want to say uh, I sat in churches growing up uh, well into my 20s uh, as a person who maybe thought I might be a Christian, wasn't quite sure, really didn't care about it, until one moment, I did. It clicked. I got it. I saw the darkness, and through the darkness, the light. No one can force that on you. No one can manipulate it. And yet I wonder if today is the day that God has turned off the lights and allowed you to see the true light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is you today, don't delay. All of us are saved the same way, through faith. Trust in what Jesus has done on your behalf. And I call you today, if that is you, do it now. Don't waste, don't wait, don't put it off. But for those of us who are Christian people, well, what does it mean? Well, my friends... It's very easy to feel defensive when people attack our faith, when Koshi hits on the Bible like a piñata, you know, when, when family members mock us or make fun, when we see public Christians belittled. Um, we can respond one of three ways. We shut down, you know, we cower and just try and have a private faith, or we fire up, you know, and get, you know, very aggressive, or most commonly we compromise. We try and soften the message, you know, make it more palatable, you know, try and make it broadly appealing to people so they'll kind of be trapped into coming in further and further. But my dear friends, the reality of, the, of, of, of eternity that Jesus tells us is that what people need to hear above all else is the life-transforming message of grace. They can only understand grace if they know what they're being saved from. They need to know about sin. They need to hear about the gospel. And when you see humanity in reality, well, who cares that people have a go at us? Standing up for morality is a good thing. We need to keep doing it. Don't mishear me. But in the light of eternity, let's not, let's not win the battle but lose the war. We need to be focused with eternal realities in mind. What does that look like in practice? Well, it's pretty simple. Who do you know? Who do you know who doesn't know Jesus? Can you think of people? Might be the person sitting next to you. Might be your neighbour, might be your friend, might be your co-worker, might be the bus driver. You might know them well, you might hardly know them at all, but who do you know? Here at EV, we're um, serious about seeing people come to know and love Jesus. Uh, it's our mission. But it's a mission that doesn't work with professionals at the front banging the drum and you, know, you just watch. It's a mission we are all in together. In the coming term, as every term, we're going to run Explaining Christianity on a Tuesday night. And I want to encourage you to bring someone. Over summer, we've got carols, Christmas, Summerfest, Summer Series in January. There's a bunch of different things. They're put on for you to bring people. Would you do it? We're in a special time out of COVID. Don't waste this pandemic. <laughs> Let's use it so people can come to hear the life-changing news of Jesus
which makes us in the action of more and more like Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us, primarily your son Jesus Christ, that he gave himself for us, that we may live. I pray, Lord, for people here who do not know you and yet, oh Lord, I pray for your spirit's work in their hearts, that maybe right now at this moment they're understanding for the first time the blackness and the light of reality. Lord, I pray that you would give them um, a faith, faith that they can believe and be saved, forgive them of their sins. And Lord, for those of us who are Christians, let us be captured um, by the urgency of eternal realities. Um, let us not be uh, ashamed or cowardly. Um, let us not be excuse makers, but rather, Father, let us be bold and courageous. Take risks that are really no risks at all. Um, to tell as many people possible in the time we have possible of the life-transforming news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's in his powerful and precious name that we pray. Amen.